0: Hello there, ladies, gentlemen, and multitudes of the multiverse. Um, first up, apologies, we had a couple of weeks off to sun ourselves on my companion's private trash island in the South Pacific, but we're back for the companion briefing for September the 1st. I'm your friendly neighbourhood editor man, James Hoare, and I'm here with my flame-haired love interest, Tommy, face it tiger, Terry Green. Hi, Tommy. Hi, <laughs> Tommy. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Great keeping intro. the intro a secret for me. <laughs> so just as I was about to send last week's Week in Geek, the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer was leaked and then yanked away again. There was a lot of excitement. I was hovering over the send button, thinking, "What am I gonna? Am I sending this, or is it? Is it coming out? Is it not coming out?" I sent it anyway, and then the very next day. We've got Spider-Man, No Way Home, the first teaser trailer. That was in this week's Week in Geek. And oof, there's it's a most, lot happening. Most watched trailer of all time, isn't it? Oh, I do not know. But yeah, there's there's lots of lovely little nods to the potential villains. We've got a Green Goblin pumpkin bomb, I think they're called in the animated series. Of, it's not actually shaped like a pumpkin in the films, so I don't know if they call them that. Um, <laughs> of course, we've got Doc Ock.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Super excited for that. Alfred Mullane is back. Very, very exciting. And he
0: looks well, doesn't he? I'm
1: sure there's a bit of CGI face going on. Oh, no. But if there's not, then he does look very good. Yeah, he looks younger than he did in Spider-Man 2. (laughs) Yeah, well,
0: he's he's going through a tough time around about time in Spider-Man 2. I I heard he was eating a lot of cake.
1: He doesn't look as well as Aunt May does compared to... Spider-Man 2. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to be in for a massive surprise when he tries <laughs> to kidnap her. Wow. Oh, I'm staying here.
0: Um, yeah, that, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I mean, I, I think... I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I've am sure i spoken about this before on the podcast, but uh, I definitely in life in general, I've spoken about it a lot. But Sony's trailers Podcasting give away life, so and- much of the film, don't they? I, I find Sony more than any other studio you end up just watching like a, a you know, 60, 70 second version of the film and it just kind of takes a lot of the satisfaction out. I, mm. I guess it kind of feels different here just because there's been a lot of rumours and set leaks about what this film could potentially be about. So a lot of these things I kind of just already was expecting to see in there. But if we hadn't had these set leaks and things, I think that trailer probably gave too much away for me. What, what do
0: you think? It's difficult to tell because... There's obviously a lot going on there and it does feel like a big part of the selling point for um No Way Home is is really look how much we've managed to cram into this clown car before the doors fell off. Yeah. I'm not a massive spider fan, I have to say. He really wasn't like my guy growing up. Um mm. I always identified with Wolverine primarily. Not because of any of the cool stuff, just because of the body air. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that makes sense. Now, see, I'm very much of the Spider-Man, the animated series generation. that uh, Like that and all of those sort of 90s animated series is probably what got me into comic books from like an earlier age. So definitely are lot of those. Well, or maybe you can blame a lot on those. I don't know how to...
0: Depends how you look at it. Well, I mean, they're responsible for the current state of superhero movies in a way because the generation that grew up on uh, the X-Men animated series... War was then in its teens and early 20s when Brian Singer directed X-Men and then that generation went off and did whatever else. And I'm assuming those numbers match for Spider-Man as well. Like if you yeah. were sitting there in front of the Spider-Man Saturday morning cartoon, then you were the right age for Sam Raimi Spider-Man and without Brian Singer and Sam yeah. Raimi. It's
1: interesting because it doesn't quite track with DC, even though it's very similar. So it was more the, the 89 Batman film is the one that really sort of did it i mean even beyond that you've got the 60s batman show um but for my generation it's definitely batman the animated series that was the thing but yeah it's just interesting that there's like all these different generations for for batman obviously the comic books throughout that time but in terms of other media um yeah i mean my favorite of those animated shows was uh where's the silver surfer one and uh yeah, I've only been disappointed so far, but I'm still holding out for a Silver Surfer film. Oh, that'd be lovely. I wonder reading of give Norrin Rad.
0: Or... What's that say?
1: Bit of Norrin Rad. Norrin Rad protecting, protecting the planet of Zenlar. <laughs> <laughs> love it's it. A, possible
0: in Phase Four. It's that. It's Norrin. That's the fir-
1: the, f- the first time I saw Drax was in um the Silver Surfer animated show. He, he's a character in that. He's an android in that. They changed the character somewhat. Um, but yeah, I think that's the first time I saw
0: Thanos as well, I believe. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, they crammed so much lore into those animated series. You know, it was incredible. They really did, they, yeah. Like revisiting them on Netflix or wherever. And you sit in there looking, going, like, oh, brilliant. Look, it's. how oh, they have adapted, you know, Mutant. Massacre from uncanny X-Men and stuff like that. <laughs> thinking, this is incredible that they slipped all this this past us as, as kids. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. So this has turned into a little bit of a tangent and we're at serious risk of becoming um I think this is the natural end point for any podcast is when people just talk nonsense amongst themselves forever. <laughs> Let's just, just talk about nineties cartoons. <laughs> Best, <laughs> but from um, 90s my... cartoons <laughs> to <laughs> thousands cartoons. Nice. Uh, have you been keeping up with Marvel's What If? Up there on Disney Plus on the internet.
1: Sort of. I think I get like a B, B plus maybe. So I've not seen this week's episode yet. Uh, but I saw. I've seen the last two. So I've, I've seen the first three episodes. Which uh, we spoke about the first one. But we haven't had a chance to speak about, I think I actually said in that episode that the one I'm most looking forward to is the T'Challa is Star-Lord episode, which turned out to be the next week's one. Um, And then we haven't had a chance to speak about it yet, but it definitely lived up to my expectations. I thought it was so much fun. I thought it was the most fun that they've had in any of these, because the others have been a bit sad (laughs) in in many ways, where it's just like, oh, everyone's sexist, you know, and is the second world war it's horrible and then it's kind of like oh the avengers are just getting assassinated that's you know it's really sad and but this one was just kind of like oh this is just a great fun little romp like this is a true like oh wouldn't it be like hypothetical well what if t'challa was taken and how would it be different and you know thanos is now a good guy it's just it was a real just a uh, good time i thought what have your thoughts been
0: on the last couple? Absolutely. That was my, my favourite too so far. And I, I don't expect that ranking to to change. Um, yeah, it was, just, it was just so much fun. And it, it was just a vision of a world in which Star-Lord was actually quite a nice guide. It was determined to effect positive change on the universe. Oh, look what a difference it would make. Peter In, Quill <laughs> just stayed at home. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, not good for, for Peter Quill, mind you. What I really liked, actually, was the prominence that Carth the Pursuer, or the Hunter, i forgot what his superhero name is. Carth the Pursuer, yeah. Um, Jimon Honsu, because I remember when Guardians first came out, he was quoted as saying, like, I have a four-year-old son who loves superheroes from Spider-Man, to Iron Man, to Batman. He's got all the costumes. One day, he looks at me and says, Dad, I want to be light-skinned so I can be Spider-Man. Spider-Man has light skin. That was a shock, and that's why I'm excited to be part of the Marvel Universe, so I can hopefully provide that diversity in the role of a superhero. And it made me realise just how long ago even 2014 is in superhero movies. And I thought, I don't know if it was an intentional kind of callback to that, but I certainly interpreted it as one and that's what i thought of to have him you know on screen as it were looking black panther in the eyes was just a big kind of high five across the generations i thought for me like and was such he... a big
1: fan as well it was so it was so
0: uh endearing to yeah, see that i loved it, it. it just felt super meta like the the kind of the world that and onsu Wanted or felt like he could create by taking on what was effectively, you know, the 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 sea villain in Guardians of the Galaxy it exists now. It exists with um, the late great Chadwick Boseman.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to talk about as well. Is obviously it was um, sadly Chadwick Boseman's last ever role, which is quite nice that it was Black Panther, which is uh, one of his most important roles and you know, one of the most important characters to so many people. So um it was really nice to kind of hear his voice again and hear that performance. I know a lot of these Marvel characters have kind of been recast in the what-ifs. Um uh So it's nice when you get people like Jimon Honsu and Chadwick Boseman to, to come back to their roles. Josh Brolin came back as well as Thanos, which was just oh, an absolute delight.
0: Um Yeah, I mean... It probably doesn't need to be said um other people have probably said it better but I think when when he's voice acting you have no choice but to focus on it but Chadwick Boseman's accent was so good and it set me off reading about you know why and how he, he picked that and it was is he speaks with the, the, the Hosa accent, which is one of the, uh, the Bantu ethnic groups in South Africa. And that accent was only picked because the, the actor that they, they cast as um, King Chaka was is, is Hosa. Um, that's the, the, the kind of Nelson mm-hmm. Mandela's ethnic group, Trevor Noah as well. Um, so he kind of adopted it from that because it would be weird if Father and Son had completely different accents. But he really committed to that. And like Chadwick Boseman wanted that language in there. He wanted to hear it spoken. And I think it was after Winter Soldier, he did Message from the King, which I think is on Netflix. I went away and watched it immediately after after watching um, this What If, where he plays like, a South African going to the States to try and find his sister. And I was watching interviews where, you know, Boseman's talking about how he... That's when he first got his kind of dialect training and he used that as a little bit of a, a, a test to see if this was something he can do. And it is incredible because it's not an easy accent to do and it's not an easy language to do because it uses um, what they call click. I think click vowels at the start. Like I can't even say HOSA properly because the X is X-H-O-S-A and the X represents a click sound which I just can't do because it's, oh, it's wow. not. Yeah. I, like, I can't even do romance languages without sounding ridiculous. Ou uh, est la plage? Oh, no, you're right. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just really think that, like, his fidelity to representing that culture and what could have just been a throwaway decision or just a decision of convenience, oh, this guy's speaking with this accent, uh, I guess... Challah has a, a Hosa accent, became such a huge part of the, the mythos. It, it kind of... And then the, the, the fidelity with which he approached that language and that culture on screen, even, you know, in an animated series, is, is just such an incredible thing, such a brilliant, beautiful thing. And, you know, he he's left so much legacy for someone so young already, and that's just incredible, isn't it? Like, his family must yeah. be very proud. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, on to the to episode three, what if the world lost its mightiest heroes? Um, I don't feel compelled to talk about this one quite as much. I definitely didn't enjoy it as much, but I think that was just because it reminded me a lot of DC's identity crisis, if you're familiar with that. I'm not a, familiar with anarchy, it, but... I, I, like plastic man wakes up one day and his wife's been murdered. This is I haven't read it in about fifteen years, so this is going to be very much um, I don't know your granddad describing something that happened to him. <laughs> but basically, the um, the killer uses shrinking technology, and like they discover that Sue Dibney, Sue Dibney, the wife of. Plastic Man. was it The Elongated Man? I can't remember. It's one of those, <laughs> one of them stretchy buggers. <laughs> uh, she's got tiny footprints on her brain. <laughs> <laughs> I and mean, the murder weapon was a pair of tiny feet. And <laughs> I know what you're thinking, this sounds awful. It's not. It's really kind of tense because they're trying to work out, like, the Justice League think that some, like, big bad is, like, targeting their loved ones. Um, And it was just, it was Jean Loring, but I can't remember whose partner she is, Um, but she just wanted, she felt like a little bit of a crisis would bring them all closer together or something. Anyway, it just Mm -hmm. felt very, very similar to that. It was just tiny murderers attacking the world's (laughs) premier super team.
1: Yeah, I think it raised some good questions at the end with, um, you know, the... Hope Van Deen stuff, uh, but I, yeah, I, th- I think the mystery element of it was really fun, and like uh, I enjoyed seeing it play out and where it was going to go. But overall, it was probably the episode so far that's been easiest for me to maybe just look at my phone or something and not be a hundred percent, you know,
0: dialed into what's going on. Um, yeah, it didn't. I think for me, I enjoyed What If as being. A retreat from the burden of kind of the MCU's kind of overweening sense of consequence. Like this is important. This matters. Like, ah, oh, eat this big cake of context and continuity. Just, just eat it all down. You know, like, sits in your stomach like a bag of cement. And I've just enjoyed like the the what if chala became Star-Lord because it was such a a fun little throwaway thing. But these last two episodes, I know you haven't seen What If Doctor Strange Lost His Heart Instead of His Hands Yet, but they are taking themselves so seriously. And that's kind of ruined it a little bit for me. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking out the latest one. Um, I think... I think I really like the Doctor Strange film, although I've not seen it since the cinema, but I remember really liking it at the time. So I'm I'm probably going to have to revisit that, certainly before this new swath of Doctor Strange appearances um, over the next couple of years happens. So I'll definitely definitely be revisiting that. And I'm looking forward to seeing, diving back into that world
0: with this episode of What If as well. Yeah, it was an odd one because I'd completely forgotten about the Tilda Swinton ancient one until she pops up in this episode. And I was like, oh, okay, that was a thing, wasn't it? That was a massive problem. Um, it's interesting, though, because it leads us neatly on. With Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings coming to cinemas this weekend, we're adding an extra ingredient to our analysis, goulash. I'm talking comics, Tommy's talking box office, and we're joined by companion co-founder, Lawrence Cow to talk Asian representation and his hopes and fears for the MCU's pivot to Kung Fu. Hi, Lawrence.
2: James, thank you for such a lovely introduction.
0: Thank you for joining us down here in, in the, the cardboard box that Tommy and I have to share in the, uh, the companion cellar. Um, are you looking forward to Shang-Chi? What's your kind of your vibe?
2: Yeah. I mean, this film Simu Liu and, you know, any basically kind of television show or film that has Asian representation is always a huge topic of conversation within my own family, whether it's with my brother, who also works um, in media and entertainment, uh, or with my parents, uh, it just doesn't happen very often. So, so it tends to be a tentpole moment in and amongst, you know, my friends and family.
0: What's the um, what's your relationship like with Marvel Comics? Were you you a Marvel fan growing up, or um, what sort of other kind of entertainment was was a massive influence? Because typically Marvel Comics, that are the kind of, it's very much the the white geek thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, there's no other way of putting it. Like they're, they're written by white guys for white guys, typically.
2: Jim Lee is a pretty big deal, you know, he was very influential in, in my childhood. Um, you know, interestingly, I've actually been very close to comic books uh, in in a very interesting and weird way. I was introduced to comics um, a pretty early age, maybe like nine years old, ten years old, maybe a little bit earlier. I remember getting Marvel Universe Series 3 comic cards back in the day uh, when I was probably eight or nine years old like at, at a birthday party. And my uncle, he was very, very forward-thinking when he um, uh, lived in Taiwan. I guess he still lives in Taiwan. And uh, at the time, he was selling a lot of anime and manga. And he thought that um, Marvel, Image, DC Comics would actually start to do very well in Asia. So I don't know if he was the first, but he was definitely very on in importing Um, comic books, um, Western comic books into Taiwan. And in order to do that, uh, my dad effectively helped become uh, his kind of distributor, I guess, in some ways. And so we actually ran a comic book company, distribution company, I suppose. Um, And so, yeah, I was very much in and around the very early days of diamond distribution. Well, I wouldn't say early days, I guess, uh, the, the kind of 90s diamond distribution going to these huge warehouses that I think people typically or at least stereotypically think about comic books. And, um, and then, yeah, I remember getting free tickets to San Diego comic-con and my dad just wouldn't want to go because there was no reason why we would have to go. We already got all of our, our comics um, shipped to our home. And so, so yeah, I do actually have lots of original Spawn, Witchblade, Gen 13 comics, Signed, sealed, probably rotting in my parents' um, you know closet somewhere at home.
0: Oof! Like if it. you could check in on those, I'll, I'll be around <laughs> with a, a bag for life at the end of the week. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. such an amazing kind of experience. Um, and I'm always really fascinated by those kind of those crossovers of, of of culture, and I suppose Marvel has become an international language now. It's such a powerful brand.
2: It, it's so interesting. Growing up, I suppose, because you know, off every summer I would be going back to Taiwan, and you would see these amazing kind of figurines of Gundam or Dragon Ball Z, you know, and uh, everything was in, in in Japanese, I suppose. And so, you know, I'd have to almost like learn, uh, uh, like like Japanese, or get. Translations. Luckily, my grandmother knew Japanese, so she could tell me what was going on. And then you can kind of see that being the precursor, I suppose, years later. Obviously, I didn't realize that as a kid, but, you know, where uh, comics and comic films and, and animes and uh, animations and, and um, collectibles could be going. And so I think we're, we're starting to really get to that point now, you know, uh, a decade or two later, of uh, fact. So, so that's been really cool to see this kind of convergence of the, the two worlds.
0: Yeah, um, Asian representation in comics in the nineties was pretty good. I mean, Jubilee had joined the joined the X Men. Psylocke was there. Um, I mean, to least Psylocke was an English woman, like possessing a Japanese woman. But okay, fine, whatever, we'll take it. Um, as you say, Jim Lee was was kicking ass over over image, but there wasn't a massive amount on the big screen or even the small screen for that matter. Are there any kind of standouts for you that were, you know, these sort of rare moments of um, hope in in what was quite a a white-dominated, you know, superhero movie, superhero TV um, universe?
2: Yeah, you know, it's weird. I didn't think about it, um, I guess, when I was a kid. Right. So my favorite comic books and storylines were like Spawn and Wildcats. And when Spawn did the crossover with Wildcats, um, the X Men, you know, I, I just, to be honest, I probably didn't even register Jubilee and Psylocke having Asian backgrounds. It may, maybe I did, but I think I probably gravitated more towards video games when it came to that kind of thing. And to be honest, this probably sounds. Um, I don't know if it's stereotypical or not, but it was like the, the Jackie Chan Jet Li movement. That was like, oh yes, um, you know, we can see people like us on screen. So they weren't superheroes, if you know what I mean. They were they were action heroes, and we've known about them. And I think the Hong Kong movie scene, you know, it's not anywhere near as glamorous as Hollywood. It didn't feel as untouchable as Hollywood. So you felt like a really close kinship, or at least I did, for example, with somebody like like um, Jackie Chan. I know this sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> I would almost feel like he's my uncle more than like a celebrity, but like like an uncle you really respect, but it just always felt like you were always a couple of degrees away from somebody like that, and so when you see them on the big screen, it was really comforting and warm, and, um, uh, and, and yeah, so that's kind of how at least I personally felt um, seeing... Uh, seeing people like Jet Li and, and Jackie Chan on screen.
0: Yeah. I suppose it's, it's very, very similar. In fact, it's exactly the same as uh, my relationship with Sean Bean. Like, whenever, <laughs> whenever he appeared on TV, seriously, my dad would point at the screen and go, there he is, there's his lad. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. yeah and, a... and about 45
2: minutes from now, he will die. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> another,
0: another, Another blow against Yorkshire representation. Yeah. Uh, every time Sean Bain gets (laughs) together. So I want to kick things off by talking a little bit about the the kind of the comic book background of Shang-Chi. Because my criticism of the movie, or at least my trepidation about the movie is, you know, they're effectively building a house on sand here. I don't think the foundations are enormously stable. Um, and that's no criticism of the, the characters' creators. They were undoubtedly well-meaning, and they were effectively limited by their own cultural context or exposure. But Shang-Chi is very much this white American vision of the quote-unquote mystical East. Now, he first appeared in 1972. He was created by writer Steve Englehart and artist Jim Stalin. Um, Engelhart with artist Frank Brummer also gave us that era of Doctor Strange that informs the current depiction. Um, so that's another series that has uh, a history of problematic Asian kind of stereotypes and motifs. Although, weirdly, um, the MCU have contributed their own drama to that with the, the ancient ones. So they're at least sort of consistent Um what I'll also say is, Engelhart and Stalin were dropping a ton of acid at the time. That's a matter of record. They are, I think, they were living together as well, and they're doing all sorts of trippy shit. Um, now, Shang Chi started out with Marvel attempting to get the rights to Kung Fu, the TV series where um, David Carradine dons quote-unquote Yellow Face. Now, when they were unable to do that, they went one worse and got the license to use Fu Manchu, the inexcusably racist Chinese supervillain of the early 20th century Sax Roma Pulps. Um, That's a good name for a traveling jazz musician, isn't it, actually? Sax Roma. Sax Roma, Tommy. So (laughs) Shang-Chi, who's an original Marvel character, although he's described as being the son of Fu Manchu, was created in order to put this new rogues gallery to use. Now, Fu Manchu, instantly was the archetype at birth, Iron Man's own problematic, kind of droopy, mustached, long-finger-nailed villain, the Mandarin. Um, so that's, like, the deep history. And to put this into to great context, Engelhart and Stalin um, and that crop of new Marvel talent, deeply embedded in the 1970s counterculture. So that meant LSD and Thrice-Zerk's Asian mysticism in the form of the New Age movement. Um, Steve Englehart reportedly used the ching to divine the character's name, Shang-Chi. On top of that, Enter the Dragon was released in 1973, which kicked off a glut of Kung Fu heroes in comics, as well as a redesign of Shang-Chi to make him look more like Bruce Lee. Um, Iron Fist and Colleen Wing appeared in 1974, and Misty Knight in 1975. So historically, in shang you have two very different generations of white American perception of Asia manifesting. You've got the xenophobic yellow, yellow peril, quote-unquote, moral panic of the 1900s on one hand, and then you've got the New Age movement and the martial arts movies of the 70s on the other. And, you know, admittedly, that last half isn't malicious, but it, it, it's no less a kind of crude caricature of... of The reality. And where my problem is with Shang-Chi and Legend of Ten Rings, what we've seen is it is deeply embedded in that kind of, I guess, one size fits all brand of sort of kung fu mysticism, monasteries, and and cherry blossoms. Um, And it's not the most edifying kind of starting point to build a potential franchise, especially with so much kind of resting on that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think um, if uh, I, I can kind of feel like you're dancing around words and feelings, because obviously being, uh, well, I'm a Chinese man. <laughs> and so <laughs> you, you clearly don't want to be offending anyone. And um, the reality, at least from my, my perspective and and everyone's perspective, yes, it's built on shaky grounds. There was just not a lot of understanding and education, you know, bordering on racism, I suppose, um, with some of these characters, at least how we perceive them now. And I don't think there's any doubt to that. So, so I think that's what it is. And this is like the kind of thing that we talk about as a family all the time, um, which is, um, you know we've kind of grown up with this i think it's particularly my parents growing up in in the kind of 70s and 80s and in, in america um they, they obviously grew up um uh in asia and taiwan in uh the 50s and 60s and um you know what like I, I i get what you're saying we're more than kung fu we're more than wontons you know and and We're more than rice based foods and all those kind of things, but we are also those things as well. And so it's interesting because what else do we have, I guess? That's oftentimes the other part of the conversation. And at least we're giving, uh, at least we're getting an opportunity to be on the big stage. At least we're getting an opportunity to be able to share at least one piece of the culture. I think it's the kind of thing where I don't think Europeans have a problem with King Arthur films. You know, I don't think- You (laughs) know, we
0: should stop.
2: Yeah, right, right. And you celebrate those kind of things. I don't think, um, you know, I think every few years I see a Joan of Arc kind of film or series. I think everyone, you know, you you have, it's okay to talk about stories that are hundreds if not thousands of years old. I think what um, allows you to make, I think what allows that to be okay, and I think what allows that to be interesting is obviously we're able to talk about lots of stories Scary films, food films, fashion-based films, romantic comedy films, all of those other things are just represented in the cinema and on television. And so it's just one of the 10 or 20 pillars, you know, one of the 10 or 20 storylines that you're able to talk about. And right now, I think with Asians and Chinese folks um, in particular, there's probably only maybe two or three different ways that we're able to kind of share our stories. And hopefully what this is going to be able to do is open up more streams, more verticals for us to go down. I think maybe what maybe we need a Shang-Chi for every kind of Minari, and then we can kind of continue to expand that. Um, and so for me, I totally understand your hesitation because um, Doctor Strange was a really big one for my brother and myself as well. We were, do we go, you know, we asked ourselves, do we go to the cinema? You know, how do we think about the ancient one? If you cast someone who's Asian, Ooh, that's really problematic. You don't cast someone Asian; they had they ran into you know their their issue and the controversy there. It's a really tough spot to be in, and so you know um, we almost needed a third arbitrator, and that was my mom. And my mom was like, "What's the big deal? If it's a great film. It's a great film." And um, and so yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost like a generational thing where we're probably a bit more aware or we have an opportunity uh, to speak out about these kind of things, whereas. Um, where my mom's generation, you know, didn't, they, they, they almost came as that kind of model minority. Let's just stay under the radar and and try to make a success, you know, out of it in America. Um, And, um, and maybe, maybe it's their sacrifice that gave us the opportunity to now say, okay, we have this platform and we can start expanding this a little bit more. Um, But look, the reality is you're explaining the history of Marvel comics you know, that are going back 30, 40 years. And so without a doubt, all of those problems will, all that baggage is going to come with it. But I'm, I'm really optimistic that the storytelling, that the, you know, predominantly Asian cast and crew, um, or at least key cast and crew um, being Asian is is going to hopefully tell the story in the right way. And, and, I, and, I, and I think they're going to be sensitive to this. Um, it's, you know, the same way uh, I think my brother and I are as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, it definitely feels like a privilege or, or luxury to, to be able to demand better and it's, it's certainly one that I'm appreciative of. Um, I think my concerns were are really that, yes, Shang-Chi has this problematic history but you know the vast majority of superheroes do. Um, I mean, you've got Captain America in the like, 50s punching out Democrats and things and so the, uh, the point of comparison I was trying to, trying to think of is you have characters like Luke Cage in Blade and they both emerged from a very similar milieu in that they were conjured up by white writers and artists and who were tapping into something that was going on culturally, which in that case, rather than being Kung Fu movies and sort of New Age mysticism, was the black exploitation movie. But the characters that then went on to appear on screen, you know, they they weren't wearing afros, they weren't jive-talking, they weren't wearing, like, gold jewellery and, like, fighting pimps. there was a bit of that in 2016's Luke Cage. But, you know, 1998 Blade movie was a steely action horror and the Luke Cage series on Netflix was this super-powered crime drama. And they showed that you can actually reclaim something problematic and you can own it and you can use it to build something positive. And in the case of Luke Cato in a position where they could actually make fun of the way the character was initially depicted.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I I think, I think it's, I think it's gonna be really tough because the reality is African and African-American culture is, is a very different experience to Asian and Asian-American culture. Um, Obviously, we have similar challenges in some ways as being minorities, but you know, our experiences are different and our exclusion has been different. Our histories have been different. It's, it's interesting because I really do like (laughs) the fact, in fact, um, Tommy, you should cue some Asian music right here. You know, maybe some inspirational Asian music with some flutes and, and some, some drums. I like Kung Fu. I love Kung Fu movies. I love, you know, um, Oh, the history—the the thousands of years of history—that I don't think people in the West know about—that um, I—that I learned as, like, you know, in Chinese school. And so, those are the things I'm really proud of. I have no problem watching cherry blossoms and Chinese wooden flutes, and you know, in wisdom and people thinking of us as being a bit smart. You know, and I know, look, it's a—it's a stereotype, but it, but it's—I um, don't know. There's some things to be proud of because tradition i suppose Uh, you know it is a very big thing in our family and and so 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 seeing that on screen is great
0: right and and so that's kind of okay the cherry blossoms by the way because i've queued up a big cherry blossom cannon for the finale (laughs) yeah yeah i mean honestly every spring
2: if i happen to be in and around you know taiwan or happen to be able to to be able to go to japan that's a huge deal right like checking out the cherry blossoms is so beautiful. It's such a magnificent you know, day in the park. So, so I, I think that's the thing. Like that, there's nothing wrong with celebrating those things. Um, I just hope we get the opportunity to celebrate the other things that we're into as well. So, so I think that's that's what it is. Like I don't find Shang Chi problematic. Um, at least I, mean, I haven't seen the, the I haven't seen the film yet, so I, so I don't know. But from everything I'm seeing and reading and hearing about and following Simu Lu you know, on Twitter and, and everything, and hearing him in interviews, I'm really pumped. You know, I, I'm really you know interested, and I'm excited to see it. Where where I think I have a lot of fear is I don't know how it's going to perform at the box office. And I think where I have this fear is, yes, I think the promotion of Shang Chi maybe has been a little bit weird, uh, or at least what I've been seeing um, online um, in this kind of little you know Twitter echo chamber. Um, a lot of people, I think maybe potentially racist people um, have been really critical uh, against it, and so uh, as in they don 't know anything about it and I think there 's a confluence of things where we 're in a pandemic you know this this thing in my background of crazy rich asians was was such a huge success, but actually, if you look at the numbers, it was only a success because it made two hundred million dollars you know against a thirty million dollar budget, and then you have the pandemic. And on top of the pandemic, you know, with Crazy Rich Asians, you were able to, you know, do almost like GoFundMe campaigns. I remember my Facebook feed had friends going to the cinema together. Everyone was dressing up. They saw it multiple times. You were able to take, you know, your grandmother and your uncles to the big screen uh, to go and see it to kind of all prop up that box office, you know, success. This movie needs to make, you know, what, 500, 600 million dollars traditionally for it to to feel like a successful Marvel film but I don't think it can achieve that you know uh, my parents as much as they want to support an Asian film they are just scared of going to the cinema and they they should they're they're older um you know and so so how is that going to be perceived and you know what sometimes these things are are silent what if this is our only shot hey we gave the Asians a shot it, it didn't make that much money. You know, it was a hundred million. And it's really easy to write a headline and I'm already seeing them, right? Which is, oh, Shang-Chi projected to be a flop. Shang-Chi's $50 million opening box office is projected to be a flop. So yeah, if if you're already setting that out there, you know, as a, if you're already setting that precedence amongst a very particularly challenging, you know, COVID world and the Delta variant, you know, affecting, um, people going out and cinemas in the United States. Um, I'm just really, I, I, I'm th- that's one aspect that I'm really, uh, I suppose, privately uh, and now publicly uh, being afraid of. And if it doesn't do well, does this set back Asians and lead roles by 10 mm-hmm. years? I and think that could be a really real th- very thing. Very,
0: very fair because you know I like to, obviously we like to believe that we're living in a better world at the moment, but, You know, even then you have to bear in mind it took, I don't know, women, literally the other half of the population, about 15, 16 years to crawl out from under the the wreckage of Catwoman and, like, be able to be allowed, quote-unquote, allowed to front a superhero movie.
2: No, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that um, I I suppose where some of this fear comes from and stems from is, um, you know, I loved A Wrinkle in Time as a book. And I also thought it was it was a very beautiful film. Um, it flopped, I suppose, right? And, and reportedly it lost over a hundred million dollars. And I believe it was directed, you know, by Ava DuVernay, a black woman. And it was the biggest budgeted film ever to be directed by a black woman. But that's the only headline uh, that's kind of being painted now. I really hope it doesn't set you know, African, particularly female African American uh directors back, you know, by ten years. And and that's the kind of thing that I think and I hope it doesn't happen with Shang-Chi, particularly because of a pandemic accounting, you know, perception. Um I obviously don't want it to flop in general either, but uh, these things kind of these things kind of matter, you know um it's very easy to say look we gave them a shot didn't work out let's move on um i like to think people are more open-minded um but you know a lot of this stuff is inherent right these are these are kind of inherent biases and and, um i think maybe they are trying in earnest but the results sometimes you know just don't go your way either so that that's my concern
1: um i think context is is the most important thing when looking at the box office numbers for something like this. Um, I mean, we've already touched on the fact that yes, we're in the midst of a, a pandemic at the moment. Um, but something that's not really been spoken about, excuse me. <clears throat> but something that's not really been spoken about is the fact that the former president of the United States was calling this virus the Chinese virus, the Chinese flu. The you know, it was it was very heavily painted against. Asian people, so I think there is a large subset of the audience that were that will be put off by by that because they're followers of this particular person, and you know, politics does have an impact on on the sort of movie going culture, um, and there is there is a whole political side to this, such as in New York City, which is the second biggest um, film going audience in the country uh, aside from Los Angeles. Um, you have to have a a vaccination passport to go to the cinema there. So you're going to have a large group of people that aren't going to feel comfortable going to the cinema yet. You're going to have a large group of people that won't want to go because they don't want to get vaccinated. And you're going to kind of be left with this smaller group in the middle that are still feeling comfortable enough to see it because they've been vaccinated and they can prove that they've been vaccinated. Um, And it's going to massively impact the numbers. And in 10 years' time, we're going to look back at the numbers and I just really hope we look with this context in mind. Um, I mean, Black Widow opened with uh, $80 million. Um, When we talk about box office numbers, particularly opening weekends, we always look at domestic numbers because it's easier to draw comparisons to other films rather than international releases because they sometimes don't get released the same weekend. Um, Not the same amount of screens It's it's harder for a a one-to-one like-to-like. But with Black Widow, that saw a day-and-date release, which isn't happening with Shang-Chi. It's only being seen in the cinemas. Um, But also, Black Widow's an established character in the MCU already, having appeared since 2010's Iron Man 2. But the first new character... This is, sorry, the first new character in Marvel since 2019 in March with Captain Marvel. um, So it, it's really tough to, to predict how this is going to do. I think um, the fact that it's Labor Day weekend, which historically is not the best weekend to launch a film. It's kind of the weird limbo between the summer movie season and the fall movie season. Uh, The the record for Labor Day weekend, for for instance, is uh, 26 million for the three day and 30 million for the four day. So to break that record, it's not that high. But even if it breaks that record by 10 million or so, you know, earning about 40 million. And for the record, I think it's probably going to make about 42 to 45, I think would be really impressive. Um, It doesn't sound like that great a number when you look at Black Widow which earned 80 million when it was available on Disney Plus as well or Black Panther which made 192 million in its three-day weekend debut I think over 200 million in its four-day holiday weekend debut so when the number compared just you know next to it it doesn't look as good I think taken into that context it's got a real uphill battle here and it's got a lot set against it, so we just need to take a step back and not use dangerous and inflammatory words like flop for a film <laughs> that's not released yet, and it's just that's just bad journalism, if you ask me. Um it, there's no look at the context of that whatsoever. And I think I think forty two million, which by the way, would be double what Crazy Rich Asians earned, um, and Crazy Rich Asians had a much better release date and no pandemic, I think would be huge and should be celebrated. But if we're going to get articles saying it's a flop, then I, I don't know what hope we have, honestly. And I, I really think it's unfair.
0: How do the, the predicted numbers, Tommy? How do they uh, compare to what the Suicide Squad got in its open weekend? Because I, there's never like, no one's ever going to go. Oh, I, you know what? I think I think we've maybe we need to hold off on the James Gunn team movies. Uh, That's never going to happen. It's really hard
1: to compare again. Uh, So the Suicide Squad opened with 52 million domestic, but that also had day and date release on HBO Max and it's R rated and it's technically a sequel. Um, So there's a lot of differences to look at with that. Um, Obviously Harley Quinn is like a massive bankable character in and of herself so it's it's a tough comparison to draw but it had a more favorable release date and only managed uh 52 million domestic actually that's gross opening i only had 26 million so um fairly low for its 185 million dollar budget i think we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago where it had i think the highest budget of any r-rated movie um but it's hard to quantify how successful it was to warner brothers because um, it's we don't know any of the HBO Max data of how many people watched it how long they watched it for how many people signed up how many people were about to churn but didn't all these sorts of things we just don't have the data for it's hard to say yes that was a success or no it wasn't um, although headlines around the internet will tell you otherwise But
2: yeah you know speaking of I guess comparisons and how do you measure success I think I think one thing that I'm really optimistic on is that, you know, everything I've seen and everything I've heard has been largely uh, positive. You know, it's it's a really cool film. Um, Simu Liu seems like a very very likable, you know, star in the making. Uh, I've been watching him ever since Kim's Convenience, a very underrated show in uh, series and and sadly cancelled a little bit too soon. Aquafina, uh, you know, amazing, funny surprising um and you know what i i think i'm i'm going to look forward to and i really hope these things exist <laughs> i hope kids start wearing you know ten rings just like they wear you know hulk buster fists and iron man you know helmets and that kind of thing i think that's the way you're going to have to measure success right and you know hopefully hopefully the kids are going to love it and and maybe it's going to take 45 days for it to get onto disney plus and then they're going to be able to experience it and you know, um, like with a lot of these kind of films, if, if it's word of mouth or Crazy Rich Asians and not having a huge opening uh, box office success, but then kind of making the rounds and, and continuing on this kind of longer tale, um, we don't know what will happen, but I'm I'm also optimistic about it. So my fear, of course, is, look, we only have this one shot. Headlines and media can kind of skew things one way, and one way or the other. But at the same time, it's a freaking amazing film. It looks beautiful. You've got an awesome you know, Asian star um, and directors. And it, I don't know, I, I'm super pumped. My brother and I are pumped. So, so most of our conversations aren't actually this doom and gloom, what's going to happen to the box office. It's, oh my goodness, we've pre-ordered our tickets and I can't wait to go to the cinema to go and check it out. Um, that's actually really what we're talking about most of the time. And obviously in the back of our mind, you know, we really hope other people Uh, agree and other people go go and check it out Um, whether whether it's in the cinema or you know at home you know uh, a month and a half later
1: yeah i think another important metric that we haven't spoken about yet that should be looked at probably more than the actual opening weekend numbers is the the sort of percentage drop-off that we get the week after so usually for a a comic book movie you can expect anywhere between like a 60 to 45 percent drop-off um but a film like Crazy Rich Asians, for example, uh, which I know is the easy comparison to make, but in its second week it made a six, it had a six percent drop. So that's had the strength of the word of mouth of that. Then its third week it had an eleven percent drop from the week before. So again, these are these are crazy numbers. Um, and then the fourth week it actually went up and made more than it did in its opening weekend in its fourth weekend. So you just have to take. You just have to look at the numbers differently. I, I would just be careful when looking at the headlines around it. It's a flop, it's a failure because it's got a lot stacked against it and a lot of that media is already out there now. But just take some of the context that I've kind of shared with you today and most importantly, listen to what Lawrence said about how good it's going to probably be and how good it looks and just have fun and go out there and see it.
2: Yeah, all right. Well, I, I'm, I'm pumped for it. Uh, I hope you guys are all pumped for it. And, um, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it, it comes out in two, two days, right?
0: Yeah. Can't wait. Sure does. Thank you so much for joining us, Lawrence. It's lovely to have you down here. Um, will we be allowed to turn the lights on at any point? Uh,
2: the energy bill is a little bit high this month. So if you can use, um, any kind of, uh, rechargeable, you know, uh, energy efficient source. Uh, that's the way to go. Otherwise I think you guys can work in the darkness cause, cause all of your phones and laptops have, have lights in the screen built in.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much from enter the dragon to exit these mad men. You've been listening to the companion briefing podcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in hope you enjoyed that discussion and we'll be back next week maybe, same time perhaps, same place yeah, why not Tommy any last words from you?
1: yeah, if you have any questions about the uh, podcast or anything else for that matter, you can send those over to tommy at the companion.app
0: thank you very much see you later, bye bye now go, go